0: And welcome to Thumbing Through Yesterday, the podcast where we take our favorite books off the shelf, blow the dust off them, and remind ourselves why it is we love them so much. My name is Tom Galley. Joining me today, we've got Tony Pisculli. Thanks for having me. And this is actually a very special episode. This is episode number 24. Uh, This marks the end of one year of Thumbing Through Yesterday. Is it... It is year? indeed. This is our twenty fourth episode, oh my goodness. the last
1: episode of the year. And what have you chosen for this momentous occasion? I have chosen one of the most momentous books in my personal reading history: uh, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency by Douglas Adams. This uh, was a, this was a fun revisit. I, I love this book an unreasonable amount. <laughs> yeah, you know, the standard
0: question: Why? Why is this the favorite?
1: Oh, it's oh, that's such a good question with this book because you know I came back to this book. I read it several times back to back when it first came out, and I think the sequel came out, and I read this again, and then the sequel, and this again. Uh, and, but most of my readings are clustered around. I think it came out in 1987 or 88. So most, most of my readings are clustered around the 80s and 90s. And then I think it's been quite a while since I visited again. And I was surprised. I was surprised by this book. It was it was very different <laughs> than I remember. Uh, our titular hero, Mr. Gently, does not appear until about halfway through the book, which was just not how I recalled it. Uh, <laughs> and I think like you, I, I blended a lot of stuff in my memory with the sequel. Um, but um, but yeah, it's it's... It's just, it's, it's delightfully written. It's it's funny. It's got those individual lovely sentences, like in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, where it's just like you just want to you just want to highlight or quote everything you read. Uh, but it's also got a um, yeah, I gotta be careful with my qualifiers here. Slightly more grounded story uh, <laughs> than you know Vogons and spaceships and the destruction of the Earth, but not much. I, destruction of the Earth still comes into it at one point. Uh, it's, um, it's set in the modern day, mostly on earth, mostly, uh, yeah, I, I thought of it as a, uh, I remember thinking of it as a much more as a successful novel, uh, than, um, than Hitchhiker's Guide initially. That was, that was my recollection of it. I was surprised to come back to this and realize that it was not actually very successful as a novel at all. It was, it was kind of clumsily written. Uh, there's no <laughs> narrative drive in the first, part of the book at all. And the only thing that sustains you is how how wonderful and surprising it is. Yeah.
0: Yeah, this, I remember reading this when it was brand new, fresh off the press. You know, mm. the the excitement, you know, I was I was in early college days and, you know, the excitement that ran through my little collection of friends was like, Douglas Adams has a new book out. <laughs> yeah. You know, we all had to run out to read it and, and nothing would do. I was stunned at how little I remembered about this book. I, I will go so far as to say I remembered nothing about this book. Um, uh, okay, clearly I remembered there's a t- character in there named Dirk Gently. Yeah. Right? Um, but and, what was uh, his real name? And that might, Did yeah. you remember that? No. <laughs> I didn't remember that he didn't have, that wasn't his real name. I didn't remember, I literally didn't remember anything <laughs> about this book. The one thing I thought I remembered about this book was not, in fact, in this book, but... Um, that didn't stop me from really enjoying it, though. This, this is Douglas at his stride. He's, he's at his stride here. I mean, like you said, if, yeah. as you start going through looking at line after line, it's like, oh, I should highlight that. Oh, I should highlight that. <laughs> You're going to end up with a book that's, you know, three pages don't have highlights on yes.
1: them. Yes. Yeah. I, another thing I love about this book, I, it's, it's, written in the, it's written in the, you know, the second half of the 80s when personal computers were just starting to be interesting, uh, in the early part of the 80s, they were, you know, uh, if you were a businessman and you needed VisiCalc, you know, or you were a hobbyist. But, but like in the second half of the 80s, people were using them for music and for art and for things like that. And Douglas Adams embraced personal computers in a huge, huge way. And that love of personal computers definitely spills over in this book and really overlapped with my love of personal computers around the same time. I was I'm working at Microsoft when this book came out. And, uh, which was, you know, if you were into PCs, it was the center of the universe at the time. Mm -hmm. And I love that, that he was just so, you know, he talks about, he talks about the possibilities of electronic music, of turning, you know, any stream of numbers into a melody. He, uh, one of the characters in the book actually creates a spreadsheet that will take your, you know, your financial reports and turn them into songs. Uh, that's one of the most requested features, um, he quotes extensively from a fictional article about fractal music, mm-hmm. pages and pages. And it's just like, oh, my God, what, a, what an info dump, Douglas Adams, but I <laughs> loved it. <laughs> yeah, so.
0: Yeah, this, again, just, I can't think of a Douglas Adams book that isn't a fun read. Um, maybe the least fun read is the wrap-up to the Hitchhiker series. But this one, you know, The Electric Monk. And even more than that, The Electric Monk's horse. <laughs> the yeah. horse, yes. I love
1: the perspectives, you know, coming from these these side characters. It's interesting. The Electric Monk is the one thing in this book that stands out for me as not belonging. Uh, It's—my uh, friend has a—I have a writer friend at Stone Coast who used to say, you can, you can only have so many dancing tacos. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know— uh, one, or maybe two at the max. And I think The Electric Monk is a third dancing taco. Uh, it's, it's one dancing taco too many. So, yeah. Um, I don't know how much we should spoil this book. There's time travel involved. Uh, it, it has been out since the <laughs> mid-'80s. I think I think we're safe here. OK. But for people who haven't read it, I mean, the story is delightful. I mean, like I say, there's no narrative drive for the first half of the book, and the second half really picks up. It's an exhilarating thriller. Um, and it, and a lot of little subtle cues that get planted in the first half of the book pay off in a big way uh, later on, in the second half of the book. Like, um, there's a question, uh, who, Reg, Reg talks about the questions that King George asked, um, you know, and, uh, and quickly tosses off an answer. And, and this is at the very beginning of the book and never revisited until much, much later when Dirk questions Richard, another character in the book, under hypnosis and discovers that he asked King George asked three questions. Reg only answered two, and from that concludes that Reg must have a time machine. Uh, it was a wonderful little piece of logic yeah.
0: there. The uh, the magic trick with the salt cellar.
1: Oh yeah, that was great. That was yeah. great
0: too, and, and the fact that you know, and you know, after the hypnosis session, right? Dirk yes. is talking. He says, "So you've encountered two impossible things, and you didn't even realize <laughs> it." Um, yes. But then Dirk actually is reduced to he can't puzzle it out. So he he <laughs> goes and he asks a child, and the child says something like, "Well, it's bloody obvious, isn't it? He's got a time machine." Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, that's a very that's a very Dirk sort of thing to do. He talks about this more in the second book. He's got a um, he's got a holistic method of of tailing people. Uh, so he'll start following someone, and if it turns out to be the wrong person, well, then he won't find out where that person went, but he usually ends up somewhere interesting. So it doesn't really matter who he follows. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Now this, when we first meet Dirk, yes. right, he's he's in his office on the phone, and and he's, he's a snake oil salesman. He's a scam artist. You know, he's, he he's, is. He's just bilking this lady that he's got on the phone for money. You know, And as, as soon as he hangs up the call, he's got another unsatisfied customer <laughs> who he's bilking for money. And he hangs up, and there's a third. You know, It's just this unending un- 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 stream of people who he's somehow um, talking into paying him. Yeah. There doesn't seem to be any reason to ascribe anything of merit to him. Um, and he's in a dump of a place. He's got a secretary that hasn't been paid. Um, yeah. uh, and then, you know, couple that with the backstory we have from him, you know, from his school days in which, again, he was something of a con artist. Um, and yet suddenly, out of nowhere, it turns out he actually is good at something, right?
1: <laughs> that tracks for me. Uh, it, it speaks to a very specific kind of person who is basically too brilliant to succeed at life. Uh, and, I, and I know people like that, and they were the people that, that, you know, that tested into school and then did very, very badly once they arrived at college. Uh, and that, you know, who could ace any exam without studying, but if you asked them to do homework, they would fail. Uh, and, and who, I mean, he, you can tell his interest is, I don't know, is in not in actually finding this cat. Like he's got, okay, one of his clients is, has a mm-hmm. missing cat, who he's billing her for something like seven years, seven years of looking for this cat. Uh, and his investigations take him to the Bahamas where he has to spend a lot of time drinking rum on the beach. Uh, (laughs) and it's like, okay, clearly you just want to drink rum on the beach, but also he's not wrong about any of his insights. Yeah. He's just not honest about all of them. Yeah. So, so this is a
0: genius that's just been waiting for a worthy incident to pop up. Yes, I think so. Yeah. It it pops up in this unlikely
1: situation. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Let's see. I highlighted. <laughs> I highlighted one of my favorite things just because this one was too great not to highlight, and it's not just a clever quote. Um, and this is a great example of of, of the horse. Uh, <laughs> uh, Reg Reg is going to check on the noise upstairs or or adjacent, mm-hmm. uh, and he says, um, you know, uh, something. Uh, oh, Where is the setup for this? Yeah. What I must ask you is this. When I come back down these stairs, always supposing, of course, that I do, and if my behavior strikes you as being in any way odd, I appear not to be myself. He must leap on me and wrestle me to the ground. Do you understand? He must prevent me from doing anything I may, I may try to do. And Reg, we don't know this yet. This is actually one of, the, one of the issues I have with this book. I love this book, but there is an issue here. And there's some intellectual leaps. You have to be pretty clever at piecing together retroactively. Reg is talking about the fact right now that there's a ghost who has tried to possess him. But mm-hmm. we don't know that yet. So then Reg comes back down the stairs and says, it's all right, it's just a horse in the bathroom. Richard leaped on him and wrestled him to the ground. (laughs) But there was a horse in the bathroom. But there was indeed a horse in the bathroom. (laughs) He wasn't possessed by a ghost. Uh, A horse came from another planet. (laughs) Yeah, so. As I recall, it was pretty content to be in the bathroom. It was. It liked liked not having an electric monk on its back. Yeah, it did not like having to deal with the electric monk. Yeah, so I mentioned that the electric monk... Probably my least favorite aspect of this book, and I and I keep trying to think about. This hasn't been made into a movie. It's been made into a TV show, which I only watched the first episode of and didn't care for. Have you watched the TV show? I have not. Okay,
0: but you know the the attempts at bringing Douglas Adams to the screen. Um, I mean, the the BBC TV series is the closest anybody's come to successful. Yes. Uh, the the other attempts should just have never been made. Yeah. Um, the most recent Hollywood feature emphatically pointed out here should not have ever been made
1: I, I tend to agree it had moments I liked Bill Nye as Slardy Bartfast I liked uh, Sam Rockwell as Zaphod. but um, but all the rest of the movie was a pfft.
0: yeah disapproved of the two heads yeah. disapproved of what they did to Marvin yeah disapproved of the fact that John Malkovich had anything to do with the movie <laughs> um,
1: but I think this could be a more successful movie because of its setting because it's more grounded uh, it would take, it couldn't be a big Hollywood movie. I mean, if you made it a $200 million, $200 million budget, it would fail. But if you gave it to an indie director who was just going to like sense. make it for 20 million with but some. I
0: mean, there's, there's so much delightful, uh, the, the language, the descriptions, and I've got a you know, uh, <laughs> go, it's Adams. Go, go. Um, <laughs> we're, we're just getting a description of two people that are wandering around the campus. Mm-hmm. Um, The other was small, roundish, and moved with an ungainly restlessness, like a number of elderly squirrels trying to escape from a sack. (laughs) His own age was on the older side of completely indeterminate. If you picked a number at random, he was probably a little older than that, but, well, it was impossible to tell.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's great. The whole book is just just full of that. Yeah, Yeah. and
0: and all of that delicious language disappears. Right. All, all of that. I mean, you, you'll get some out of the characters mouths, but yes. there's there's no way you could take that description and put that figure on the screen, you know?
1: No, but I think there's enough, like for me, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy really relies on that. That If, if you strip away the language, the story is ultimately kind of weirdly unsatisfying as a story. Yeah. I mean, it's a fun story, but it doesn't, it's just, it's just a bizarre science fiction story. Whereas this is an amazing story, and in fact, I think could be improved because I, I do have my issues with the with the structure of the story. I have some questions yeah. to get to on that point. Oh, okay, go uh, for it. Well,
0: no, I don't want to.
1: <laughs> but bypass I think anything you're saying here. I think uh, I think it could be an excellent movie. I think you know you'd lose a lot of that description, but it's always there for people to come back and read the book. You know, people like you. To see a movie and go. Ah, I must read the book, and they will be delighted and rewarded. Uh, <laughs> this is so
0: much better than what I just spent <laughs> two hours of my life on.
1: But uh, but at the same time, I think I think the story here is fascinating as a story, uh, and I think um, and I think the story could be improved if someone took another pass at it. Uh, it could just be a little bit more. A uh, little bit more linear, a little bit better supported, and then one fewer dancing tacos. Yeah. So,
0: <laughs> I'm trying to remember if the Electric Monk actually brings anything important in the story. It's, it's been a few he weeks since kills,
1: he kills
0: uh, Gordon Way. He, so yes, he does. Yes, in fact, yeah. bring something very important to the yes. story there.
1: Although Gordon Way is barely in the book.
0: Yeah, yeah but without Gordon Way, we don't have the uh, the threat.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, and he also delivers the horse to the bathroom. So. Wait. Yeah. Have done without that. Yeah.
0: Right, so the uh, I'm not convinced that the end works. From a time travel paradox, causality standpoint. I'm not at all sure that simply going back and messing with Coleridge's mind before he gets to write his poems <laughs> down in any way trumps the fact they have already taken the reincorporated ghosts back to the dawn of life on earth mm-hmm. to. Undo his mistake, which may or may not have caused life on Earth, which was a Doctor Who episode, the Jaggeroth. Uh, Interesting. Interesting. I really want to go back and see which of those came first at some point. Um, All right, so I mean, they have, the the ghost has has possessed Gordon Way. Yep. They have used the time machine to take him back to... Primordial Earth.
1: Oh, no. The ghost-possessed Wednesday week. I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 uh, Gordon's dead. Wednesday, right.
0: Um, They take him back to Primordial Earth. He's wearing scuba gear. He's going out, um, and he's going to stop himself from taking off in the spaceship, which was the explosion that they don't figure this out until after he's already underway, and nobody can stop him. It's like, that explosion might be what started life on this planet. Yeah. He's there. He's in route to stop it from happening, and they time travel to you know what? Late 18th century, early 19th century, um, and yeah. Dirk gently goes in and interrupts Samuel Coolridge. Just he to becomes the, the famous visitor
1: from wherever who who he had all of Kublai Khan in his head and he right got, and he he destroys it. He, yes, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, and that is enough for subsequent previous events to get derailed. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm not sure that I buy the chronology. That that works. I mean, you you have to. Otherwise, Douglas Adams has destroyed the world again. Yeah. Uh,
1: But (laughs) it actually wasn't clear to me whether what they were trying to do was to uh, whether they believed that that explosion started life on Earth or whether if they didn't explode, they were going to conquer Earth. And just settle it. That they, there, was a, there was an allusion to that at one point. They said they weren't stopping here to get resources. They were stopping here because this was the planet they wanted. And so if they hadn't blown up, if they stopped that explosion from happening, those people would have just taken over the earth and life never would have arisen because it would have been right. them instead. So it could be both. Uh, Either way, yeah. it, it turns out the ghost is, you know, from our perspective, a bad guy. Yes, absolutely. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. As, which, is, as is Wednesday. He's yeah. a bad person. He's weak and bad. Yeah. I, you know, all by that, it's, the the end is a little abrupt. I mean, it's, it's pretty calamitous, a pretty calamitous event. It gets introduced very late in the book and resolved very quickly. Very quickly. Yeah. And
0: and very undirk gently-ish. Yes. Um, You know, somebody who's been so far ahead on so many things, it never occurs to him that time traveling back to primordial earth and changing the outcome of a starship explosion could have consequences until after it's too late to stop it from happening.
1: Yeah, that's kind of, that seems like a, that's science fiction 101, come on. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) The farther back in time you go, the more you're gonna screw stuff up.
0: And and it's almost like at some point Adams went, well, you know what, I'm just gonna end this. Yeah. and move forward.
1: That's the impression I got that he that he had a great deal of fun writing the first half of the book. He layered in a couple of things. He went back and probably reintroduced some things that so he could drop them later. And he like, oh my god, I'm at the end. Uh, <laughs> and then this happened. But <laughs> and then this happened, boom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: I love the staircase and the the uh, yes. sofa.
1: Yes, that was just such a fun little thing. That is actually, so uh, So Richard, the software employee, has a, has a sofa that he tries to have delivered and it gets stuck in his stairwell and no one can move it. And so because he's a programmer, he writes a program uh, to, to model this sofa and his stairwell to see if there's any possible way to get it out. And not only is there no possible way to get it out, there's no possible way to get it in. Uh, and then it turns out the time machine is the answer again. But, but that little episode, that is so Douglas Adams. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually talks about, he was writing a book called Last Chance to See about visiting endangered species. Uh, and he was talking about these anteaters that made these huge mounds. And he knew basically the, the width of the mound and the height of the mound. And he just kind of wanted to talk about general terms about the volume of these mounds. And he didn't know. And so he sat down and, and disappointed his editors by missing a deadline because he wrote a program to calculate the volume of the mound based on those parameters. Yeah, so very Douglas Adams.
0: Yep. This is another one. I highlighted a bunch of pretty language,
1: <laughs> but not a lot of of content not, to talk about. Not a lot. Oh, here's some content. This is one of the things that most thrilled me about this book when I read it was this idea. And again, I was, you know, I read this in the 80s. Uh, and I... I was just out of college at that point and working at Microsoft. And when I was at college, I was studying, I was very interested in artificial intelligence and philosophy of mind. I studied artificial intelligence and computers, computer programming. I took philosophy of mind. I studied linguistics. Language is a very important part of intelligence. Uh, so that was I was kind of steeped in that stuff for my undergrad. And then, you know, had to sort of dispense with it all when I got a real job. But but he talks about this idea of of consciousness and and how much you are in control of your own mind, mm-hmm. uh, and that was fascinating to me. And you know, there's this idea that uh, that we don't. A lot of the decisions we make are not conscious decisions. We rationalize them after the fact. That some other part of our our bo- our mind, our mind body, outside of our cortex, is making decisions. And then when we query our cortex to find out why we did them, it just generates a plausible answer that has nothing to do with anything. It's just plausible. And that's the basis for, this, um, for this, this possession. If you get possessed by a ghost, you rationalize all these bizarre actions that the ghost is making you do. Mm-hmm. And to make this point to Richard, who's our, our sort of our protagonist, sort of. Uh, <laughs> we, we need him for the book to happen. Yes. Uh, Dirk hypnotizes him into jumping into the canal, even though he doesn't swim. And he says, you know, why did you jump in the canal? It's like, well, I was hot and I seemed like a good idea. It's like, but you can't swim. It's like, "Um, but I, uh," and he's just, he's at a loss. Yeah. It's like, I just proved to you that you're not in control of your mind. Yeah. As a way of proving to him that there could be a ghost out there doing things. Because Richard doesn't buy the ghost either. Yeah. This is another one of the dancing tacos. I (laughs) like this one. There are, there's a ghost, which exists from the beginning of time. Uh, uh, or beginning of life on Earth. And and there's a time machine, and then there's an electric monk. Yeah, the, yeah. the electric monk is well, there. we
0: get a second ghost, too. I mean, we get a second we, ghost. We get a bona fide
1: ghost, not yeah. a
0: time-traveling starship explosion ghost. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yes, that's true. I, I think once you have ghosts, you can have any number of ghosts you want. They yeah. sort of,
0: I, I question whether the, the alien was actually a ghost, right?
1: Um, oh, interesting. You think he was just some sort of...
0: Well, I mean, it talks about the fact that there used to be more, right, so after the explosion, many or some, at least of his crewmates, its crewmates, continued in this non-corporeal form and then mm-hmm. gradually faded out. But, and again, this, there was a Tom Baker Doctor Who episode mm-hmm. um, where you had an alien race called the Jagaroth who mm-hmm. landed in a damaged spaceship on, on primordial Earth and when they tried to take off, the ship exploded. It was the spark that started life on Earth, but it also fragmented the, the consciousness of one of the crew members through time. Ooh, um, interesting. And so this thing exists simultaneously in multiple points throughout Earth history and can occasionally communicate with itself. So it's, it's working hijinks through time in order to accumulate the technology to send itself back in time to prevent itself from... Taking off in the demonstration and blowing it up. It's exactly this plot. Um, (laughs) Wow. It couldn't be any more this plot. In fact, if you were to... We have a a robotic dog because it's Tom Baker, right? Uh. So this is a combination of the electric monk and the horse, right? We've got K-9. Do
1: you know who wrote that episode? I think Douglas Adams wrote some episodes of Doctor Who, didn't he? Now, that would be fascinating, wouldn't it? I I think he did. Uh, Not a lot. Um, I know he did some stuff besides his own stuff. Yeah, because he was at the BBC... Uh, working on the, the radio program for Hitchhiker's Guide. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'd have to look that up.
0: Oh, huh, That would be fascinating that, if that so was he, actually his own story.
1: And then that he recycled for this. Yeah, if he wrote, yeah. I, I would imagine it would be he wrote the episode for Doctor Who and then said, I'm going to reuse that.
0: Yep. Yeah. And if memory serves, which, you know, there's reason to doubt it, I think it was one of those, it was a series. Um, hmm. It was like three or four episodes. Yeah. Um, and it was one of those beautiful horrible moments where you know that you're talking to a human being and then he rips off his rubber face mask and suddenly there's the alien head but the alien head is like roughly twice the size of the human head that the rubber mask was concealing yeah one of those even yeah. at the time you had to roll
1: it's, your eyes at. it's a Spanx mask yeah this gives you compression as well <laughs> exactly. as concealment yeah, yeah uh, kind of love low-budget sci-fi <laughs> So he also does, it's not quite that, but he also has that same plot in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in the second and third books, where Ford and Arthur go back in time to primordial Earth and the Golga Frensians Arc B has landed on Earth and started, uh, they're the origin of humanity. Right. Yeah. It's the Golga Fringians, I forget their name. That sounds like a good Douglas Adams name. The the useless ones from Arc B, the telephone polishers. Yeah, it's all humanity is descended from telephone polishers. The captain (laughs) in the bathtub. (laughs) Which is a dig it himself. I don't know if you know this about Douglas Adams. Uh, He frequently talks about taking long baths as a way of, one, procrastinating, and, two, trying to generate ideas. Oh, Uh, no, I did uh, not know that. Yeah, he talks about ideas being uh, one-bath ideas or two-bath ideas. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's like Sherlock
0: Holmes, it's quite the three-pipe problem. Yes, exactly that. So anyway, so when when I was saying, (laughs) I I don't know that the alien counted as a proper ghost. Ah, Probably what's in my head is this idea of the... uh, the Doctor Who episode, where this explosion fragments somebody's consciousness and, and redistributes it through time. Um, I'm thinking of it as an artifact, like a Star Trek based artifact of a warp field explosion, mm-hmm. rather than a genuine out of body soul walking the earth ghost, which the other one is actually a genuine soul out of the body.
1: Yeah. Watch himself
0: get shot in the chest by a shotgun. Yeah. And- which that was weak, by the way. Having having the uh, the groundskeeper tell the electric monk to go shoot off.
1: Yes, I that I that, was, that. That
0: was just weak. I hate that. Um, the fact that he used that expression, which uh, I don't know, I'm not a Brit, but I don't think it's a real expression. Um, and even if it is, I don't think that the electric monk would interpret it as, let me find somebody that has a firearm, steal it, hide myself in an unlikely spot for anyone to discover me, wait till somebody does discover me, and then kill that person.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I the, the electric monk is very unsatisfying to me. The only there's one thing I like about the electric monk, which is uh, they talk about him as a as a labor saving device. So you have microwaves that that cook the food for you. You're too, mm-hmm. too busy to cook yourself. This I think is even better than the electric monk. Video recorders watch tedious television for you, <laughs> save you the bother of looking at it yourself. And electric monks—they believe things for you, so you don't have to bother believing things. See,
0: actually, I like yeah. <laughs> that concept. I like the electric monk as an idea. Yeah. Um, and I recall liking things about the electric monks I was reading. I didn't don't remember any specific moments, you know. But the the quandary that it lived in is, you know, I believe this thing, and even though I'm believing it, I somehow know that it's going to end up not being true, and I'm going to have to move on, and believe something else. Yes. But he, he it gets used clumsily.
1: Yes, it's, um.
0: and it, it's, yeah,
1: it's a clumsy plot device, and it, it, I don't think it fits with the tone of the rest of the book. I think the time machine fits in very neatly. I also think, you know, the the primordial ghost doesn't fit in very well with the rest of the book. Uh, I think of all the the weird plot threads in this book, that's the least well-threaded. Uh, it, it, comes in, it comes in pretty early. It's definitely meant to be there. It's, it's actually one of the prologues, yep. which is another thing we could talk about. This book has too many prologues. <laughs> it's like, it really takes a long time to get going. It's just so much fun that you don't care. But it, mm, narratively, it takes a long time to get going. Um, so it's there from the beginning. It's, it's an initial seed that it's, it has to be there. But at the same time, it's, it's just, I don't know, it's kind of clunky. Uh,
0: yeah. no. Dirk, as far as I can tell, the one genuine ability he has is that awareness of his own consciousness thing. Yeah, um, you know, and we talked about this when he, he demonstrated. You know, he hypnotized the guy to go jump in. the The fact that he jumped into th- that he realized he was doing things and he didn't understand why he was doing them, and yes. he made that intuitive jump to what's trying to drive me.
1: Yes. Um, he actually has a line to that to that effect, where he where he announces loudly, yep. <laughs> in a in a room, he says, "I am the master of my own mind, and I will, you know, I will resist any attempts at takeover." Uh, yeah,
0: and then he erases the voicemail message from the one, from the other ghost. Um.
1: From Gordon. Gordon, Gordon, Yeah, from yes.
0: Gordon's goes, Gordon that went through so, you know, and, and we sympathize with his pains as he's yes. he's trying to figure out how to communicate, and he finally manages to knock a phone off the hook and dial his own number and leave a message and gently erases
1: it. Yes. So I have to say, and this doesn't get a lot of play in the book, it just kind of goes almost unnoticed, but that is the bleakest picture of the afterlife I have ever read. It is awful. It is horrible. Yep. Uh, and, and this gets tossed off in the end, if this The primordial ghost, if in fact he is a ghost, talks about the excruciating pain and loneliness of being the only living, thinking thing on Earth for billions of years. Yep. And at the end of the book, they send him back to do it again. <laughs> He's going to go through that same pain again. So, yeah, that's horrible. It is. Yeah. And we,
0: we don't, don't... Do we ever get any resolution with Gordon's ghost, or do they just, just, no, just, stop, just, talking just stop talking about <laughs> it? Just stop talking about it. That's what I thought. There, there wasn't an end to that, or... Maybe there was.
1: I don't recall. I don't recall one. There are some loose threads in the book. Yep. Yeah. We get a resolution to the sofa, it gets sawed up by the police, carted out. But it doesn't, because what?
0: they go back with the time machine and oh, open the door it. so that they can get carried up into his... Oh, no, that's how it gets stuck in the first place. No, that's how they got it unstuck. That's how they got it unstuck? That's how they got it unstuck. So while they're at, waiting around at Coolidge's house for... Yeah. Dirk Gently, right, The the... Reg is the one with the time machine? Reg is the one with the time machine. Yeah. Disappears because when they you know when, when they see him next, he's got you know three months worth of beer. Yes, yeah. But amongst the things he did while he was out, you know, copying Bach and or uh, and whatnot. I love that he landed in that stairwell so he could open the door and the movers used that so they could actually get the couch up the stairs. I, I
1: think I, I think you might have misread that, or maybe I did. Uh, let's see where that is.
0: Because it was, it was in that triumphant resolution portion of the book that he talks about doing it, so.
1: Yes, uh, so there is definitely a moment where the police saw up the couch, and that could have been undone by going back in time. But I believe that's how the couch gets stuck in the first place, because the movers are trying to get it up, and they can't get it around the bend, and they open that door, and they just go, oop, and now they have to round the bend, and then that's how it gets wedged in an impossible place. Huh. Yeah.
0: Maybe I did read that. I yeah. I'm gonna have to go back and look at that and yeah. see.
1: So that's why that's why it can't so that's why when he models it it's like the couch cannot be there because there's no way physically for it to have gone from either end to this place. And the answer is there was a door there, very, very briefly, where there was room for it to get around that corner and then get completely wedged. Oh. Yeah. Well that's even funnier. It is. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's delightful. But I it was, it it was like the monk, I'll choose to believe <laughs> it this way now. <laughs> Go back and read it for yourself, because I think it's fun. And it's one of my favorite parts of the book, honestly, because uh, it's so well set up. Yeah, but it does get very quickly resolved at the yeah. end. Yeah.
0: So when I mentioned the Bach thing, your eyes lit up. There was something you wanted to say there.
1: Oh, just, again, Douglas Adams' appreciation for music, which also shines through in this book. Uh, and the idea of Bach being uh, sort of this this channel for this celestial music of the gods. Uh, and, you know, and Reg going, yeah, it's... it's Strictly speaking, it's more than one human being could compose in their lifetime. But well, we fudged it. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was fantastic. Definitely. Uh, I think I think as a novel, I think the sequel is probably more successful. But I have to go back and read it again now and find out. <laughs> I think it, you know, it, it's sort of smoother, uh, but. You know, and this is, you know, it has its warts and its and its flaws, but oh my God, I love this book. I love, love, love this book.
0: It yeah. is is a lot of fun. And yeah. I, I think I used this line in the last episode, but uh, this is Douglas Adams at his stride. Yes. He's, this is yeah. him doing what he does well and doing it pretty well.
1: Absolutely. Um, this is him laying his personality on the page, too. It's like, yeah. all my obsessions, here you go. Let me share them with you. And,
0: and maybe the story... Has its issues, but the, the language is is just such fun. The read is such a fun read. It really is. All right. All right. So the time has come to announce what we're going to start year two with. <laughs> and I was I've got four things written down here, and I hadn't decided until you know moments ago which one am I going to choose. Uh, I want to go back and spend some more time with Heinlein, because I actually have three Heinlein novels that oh. I want to get around to talking about. Outstanding. Um, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress.
1: Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Wonderful book.
0: Quintessential Heinlein. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So we will see you all in two
1: Two weeks. Two weeks. Yep.